The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about the brilliant and gross ways that science discovered in the trenches makes it to the bedside. We'll speak with Captain Mark Riddle of the United States Military Diarrheal Diseases Vaccine Research Program. What does he do? Just what it says on the tin. We're also speaking with George Peck, a medical entomologist, who will tell us what fly maggots have to do with keeping open wounds clean. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a science writer with Science News and Society for Science and the Public. I'm here with Captain Mark Riddle, the director of the United States Military Diarrheal Diseases Vaccine Research Program. While reading Mary Roach's book, Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War, I came across Mark's research on diarrhea. While many of us are aware of the perils of the stomach that can occur when we eat while traveling, Mark's research made me realize just how much of an issue this can be in the military, and taught me a lot about what we can do to prevent and treat our next gastrointestinal bug. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Bethany, thanks Thanks for your interest. I wanted to start by defining our terms. What does it mean to have diarrhea? I mean, other than the visceral experience. Yeah, that's that's a very deep question as well. Um, it's it's interesting. Di- the The way you define diarrhea kind of depends on how you're approaching it and whether you're in a um, uh, travel setting or whether you're in a clinical setting, um, whether you're dealing with uh, children or adults. Um, and in in simple terms, it's it's a change in the consistency of your stool towards a more liquid, loose or liquid um, uh, consistency, as well as a change in the frequency. Um, the issue is, is that there's there's wide variation in, in people's stooling patterns and, and habits. And so, um, you know, it's normal to have three stools a day, but it's also normal to have one stool every three days or, you know, so th- there's, there's normal, um, uh, uh, patterns that, that, that range widely. Um, so I think in terms of, of traveler's diarrhea or infectious diarrhea, even any, anything diarrhea that's caused by infection, we have a classical definition that we use and that's, um, three or more loose liquid stools in a 24 hour period. And it's thought that if you're in an environment where you're traveling, um, or you're a, a child in the developing world or even adult in the developing world and you have three or more loose stools in a 24 hour period, it's likely caused by an, an infection. Um, and then you get to the definition of what's loose and liquid. And, and we actually have um, uh, ways of, of determining that. I mean, what we use a lot in terms of the research realm is if it takes the form of a container, then it's loose or liquid. Um, I have some, some colleagues that, that like to be funny and, and they tell me the way they define whether it's loose or liquid is that if it can be sucked up through a straw, it's loose or liquid. <laughs> but but I, I, I've never tried that. I, I really hope they don't know this from experience. <laughs> I, I hope I hope not either. <laughs> so a loose stool is measured by a delightful metric known as a stool scale, which is about one of my favorite things in the medical literature. 
I was wondering if you could tell us about your stool scale and how it differs from the more widely known Bristol stool scale. Sure, sure. Um, and, and yeah, for the, for the listeners, it's, it's not a scale that you put something on. It's a, it's a scale that, uh, kind of measures the consistency. Um, so the one that we use, um, and, and is, is widely used in, in research, uh, studying infectious diarrhea is a, is a five scale. Um, and let, let me think as I, as I talk through it. So a five is, is a very firm, think of a, a, a Tootsie roll. Um, uh, if I you really want. don't want to think of a Tootsie <laughs> roll right now. <laughs> So, so that it's, it's hard. It's firm. It's not, it's not constipated, but it's, it's well, well formed. Um, and say then, then, then a, a four would be, um, really, f- uh, formed soft serve ice cream. So something that keeps its shape. And, and, uh, I don't mean to gross out your listeners, but, you know, most people can relate to, um, these food consistencies. So the, a three then, so, and, and a four and a five are normal. Um, and so a, a three then is something that, uh, is more like a pudding or a runny milkshake. So it's, it, it, it's very thick and viscous, but it takes the form of a container as, as we were just talking about. Um, a two starts to get where you see a lot more clear liquid and little bits and pieces in it. Um, and so it's, it's kind of a, a more, more watery. And then a one is like completely watery, just clear, you know, or clear or cloudy, cloudy water. So that's how we define the, whether it's diarrhea and, it, and, and it's important to know because some things like cholera or enterotoxigenic E. coli, it causes, it can cause, cause a, you know, a one, mostly one. So you're just, well, uh, you're, you're, you're just leaking water, uh, basically. Um, so compared to the Bristol scale, well, the Bristol scale is by the British. And so everything's a little bit more precise. Um, and it's a, vi- it's a visual scale. Um, and it's, it's similar, it covers the similar types of stool, but it's a seven point scale and it goes all the way from something that's very formed. Um, but includes, uh, like hard pellet stool that is related to constipation. And then it goes all the way to the very, very watery stool. Um, it's the Bristol stool scale was, was really, um, designed to, uh, to measure all sorts of, of bowel consistency, of chronic constipation, of, um, you know, malabsorption. Um, uh, and, and so it's, it's got a little bit, a few more gradations and it's meant also for the patient to be able to have this scale. And then when they go to the bathroom, they look and they, um, can record specifically what their stool looks like. Um, in, in the research world, we, um, we're generally taking in stool. We're grading it ourselves. Um, or, uh, and so it's, it's, uh, we do a lot of the grading, but in actuality, we, we, some of our trials, we have, um, visuals as well. So we have, you know, five jars, one with a Tootsie roll, you know, and, and with basically that with things that look like the grade that they're in. Um, so that's, that's kind of the main difference. You have ruined chocolate desserts for me (laughs) for all time. I will never look at pudding the same way again. Sorry. Maybe you should edit that out. No, no. No, that's fine. 
<laughs> and as we've kind of established, diarrhea is a, hmm, shall we say, running joke. Yeah, yes, I've, I've, I've heard that before. <laughs> in most developed countries. But through history, and actually even today, it's a very significant issue. It's an especially tough problem on the battlefield. What has been the history of diarrhea in war? Well, yeah, that it it goes back um, uh, many years. Uh, you know, even even before um, you know, kind of modern modern recorded history. You know, there's accounts of of diarrhea in battle um, and large people dying of of, of dysentery or, or um, uh, you know of, of problems. Um, I would say you know in the modern historic times, starting from the Civil War on, uh, it's also played a prominent role. Um, you know, in, in the Civil War, there was an old saying that it, you know it takes good guts to be a soldier, and and part of that was that you know you you had to have a real strong constitution, otherwise you would get sick on the battlefield all the time. There were there were kind of unwritten rules that you know if a man was so sick and was was having to go to the bathroom, you know, just in the middle of the field, that there was a soldier's creed that you wouldn't you wouldn't shoot at that person i mean it was just because it was a such a common and and i think i think men in battle found um uh, i don't know found sympathy in that um there are there are stories of 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 campaigns in napoleon where large groups of people uh were were taken down by dysentery um and and in these in the pre-antibiotic era um, you know, often more men would die of, of dysentery than malaria or, or any of these other infectious diseases. So significant. Um, you know, it, since, since World War II, it, it, it did, it did have some problems there. Um, you know, Rommel, the, the, the German, um, uh, general in North Africa, and he claims that, uh, you know, it, that that, it wasn't the, the British that defeated him or, in in total, but it was also dysentery among his men that that caused them to lose the battle, and that was in Alamein. Um, and and then in 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 modern times, I think you know, looking in in Vietnam uh, again, more more diarrhea than malaria in in Vietnam, uh, and. Um, still a significant problem, but we started to learn our lessons about hygiene and how to control food and water sources, uh, and that that kind of changed it, and it and it started becoming less less frequent, um, so to say. I think I think now it's um, it's often considered more of a, a battlefield nuisance, but but I don't think we really know. I have a a good colleague of mine who's a, a British gastroenterologist and he describes a story in, in Afghanistan where, um, some military personnel were out on a, out on a, um, patrol and they were getting sick with, with diarrhea and dysentery and losing weight. And, and, you know, they, they come back and, and, um, one of them steps on an improvised explosive device and, and he's interviewing them all and, and learning kind of what, what it was like out there and how things have happened. And it, it, it raises the specter that, you know, if you're so preoccupied with 
if you're dehydrated because you've been stooling so much, you've got cramping, you're, you're wondering where you're going to, to, to go to the bathroom next. You know, how, how, how are you really paying attention to some of these danger cues that you see? Um, and, you know, is it possible that actually diarrhea, even in today, could contribute to, uh, mortality? So it's, while we have better treatments for it and we have better food um, and better water, those, those are still um, we, we're still challenged by the illness that is is very common um, and still impacting um, our military forces in in doing their job. Uh, so much so that, um, like you mentioned at the at the beginning, I mean, we we have a, a major vaccine program where we're trying to develop vaccines. To, to prevent um, these illnesses in the first place. You say it's still pretty common. How high is the rate of diarrhea now among troops in, say, the Middle East? Yeah, so uh, in the Middle East, um, you know, it, it, it depends on uh, – you know, it depends on a lot of things. It depends on, you know, are you going to a facility where, um, it's, we say it's hardened, where, you know, you're getting all your food at a, a dining facility, you have flush toilets, um, you know, you're, um, you're eating meals that are prepared, uh, based on, um, current standards of, of preparation. And so, you know, in that situation, you know, the attack rates are about 10% per month or so. Um, but if you're out on patrol and you're or you're exposed, um, you know, eating off the street and things like that, the rates can be up to 80 percent per month. Um, a good rule of thumb that we use on average is that uh, about 30 percent per month um, develop uh, what would meet the definition of traveler's diarrhea. So about a third um, uh, per month in these in these uh, austere uh, places. That's very high. How does that compare to diarrhea in the local population? Yeah, so the local population—it's it, a, a very—it's a good question. We uh, in kids in the in the developing world up till about the age of five, um, they're getting about uh, you know five to eight episodes a year of of diarrhea. So um, I guess if you if you calculated thirty percent per month. Um, you know, then that would be about four episodes per year, uh, of a soldier living, um, if you were living in, in one of these over for a year. So it's, it's a little bit more kids in the developing world, but by the age of about five, um, the rates of diarrhea go down because you children, uh, you develop immunity. You, you know, it takes a while, but you, you eventually, um, your body has seen all the different variety of things that can cause diarrhea and, and you acquire immunity and, and you don't get as sick as much. You still get it. Um, but, but not as, as frequent. And then when you get older in the, in the developing world, when your immune system starts to, to wane, then you actually start getting more, uh, infections. And what actually causes these cases of diarrhea? Yeah, so that, there's a lot of things. It's uh, um, and it and again, it depends on the the population, and it depends on the country that you're that you're in. Um, re, there's regional differences, um, but what's from the I'll start with the travelers first, um, or ad any adults that that travel overseas. It's about about eighty five to ninety percent bacteria. And we know that because we've done studies where you give 
people an antibiotic to take every day and or you give person a, a placebo, a sugar pill to take every day. And those that are taking the antibiotics um, will be protected um, anywhere from 85 to 90 percent of the time. Um, so but we don't advocate doing taking antibiotics for travel. There's 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 a, it's it there's safety concerns. But that is that's informed the fact that it's predominantly bacteria. Now, if you get if you or I or anybody gets sick in the United States or the developing world, it's predominantly virus, um, and and that's what causes it. Um, in the in the developing world, the kids in the developing world, uh, it's early on. It's predominantly viruses, rotaviruses, and norovirus, um, uh, and bacteria. So. It, it kind of depends. Um, in terms of traveling, we also say that it's about maybe 10% also is virus. Um, norovirus is the, is the most, probably the most common one. And then very few, you know, less than 5% or less than probably two or 3% are parasites like Giardia or amoeba or cryptosporidium, those kind of things. Generally, you get more parasites as you stay longer in places or if, if, if you're even more exposed, you know, eating off the street a lot or living amongst the locals, um, think of, uh, of aid workers that are working in refugee camps where you're really exposed to the fauna and flora of the, of the environment. So, uh, but bottom line is for, for travelers and military, it's, it's, uh, a vast majority is bacteria. Now, it's a lot of bacteria. There's, um, there's like seven different flavors of, of E. coli. There's enterotoxigenic E. coli. There's intraaggregative E. coli. There's intrahemorrhagic E. coli. You know, the, the list goes on. Um, but there's also things like Shigella, um, Salmonella, Campylobacter. Those are, those are all common as well. And so it's a real challenge because there are, so many things that can cause traveler's diarrhea. And then even among the bacteria, there's such a variety of things that, that cause it. But there are things that cause it more commonly, like enterotoxigenic E. coli, intraaggregative E. coli, norovirus, Shigella, uh, Campylobacter. And so those are the ones that we're focusing on developing vaccines for. Mark, while bacteria and viruses and parasites, but mostly bacteria, do the sickening in terms of giving someone diarrhea, it's actually flies that do the spreading, right? Well, that's flies certainly play a role. Uh, the, the, uh, a number of studies have shown uh, that flies uh, that land on poop, they pick it up on their feet and they take it to the next to, to food and they spread it there and, and you get it. it it's particularly um, for bacterial causes or, or other causes that require only a couple organisms to cause illness. So for like Shigella, you, if you get 10 Shigella organisms, that, that can cause disease, um, uh, or, or norovirus. You know, it's, it's, it's so few, few particles can, can cause disease. Um, but a lot of the bacterial, uh, requires a much larger inoculum. So it may not be due to flies, but certainly, um, there's a lot of information that supports that flies are important. So, uh, there's been some very nice, um, kind of time series studies where they measure, you know, trends of temperature and, and, and growth parameters of, of flies. Uh, and then they also, and that really mirrors 
um, disease uh, such as Campylobacter uh, that that follows that trend of, of fly growth and 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 fly expansion. And then they've actually done some some trials um, and studies where they've uh, controlled fly populations and uh, such as in the Israeli Defense Force, they control fly populations and they see the incidence of disease goes down. So. It's certainly a, a factor. Some people, you know, depending on the situation, it, it, it may be associated with you know, 10%, um, or so, maybe, maybe higher if you eliminate the flies. We certainly do that in the military. There, whenever you deploy, there's a, there's a lot of fly control that goes on where you go. But, but flies aren't the only thing. And, um, I think what, what probably best describes the risk of how you get this stuff is what what uh, somebody coined uh, as the fecal veneer of the developing world. So there's just a thin layer of poop that covers everything, and uh, it's hard to avoid it. Yes, it's in the food. Yes, it's in the water. Um, uh, yes, it's on 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 surfaces, and and you need to avoid all those things. But it, it, there's just a thin layer of contamination that you end up picking up on your hands and putting it in your mouth, and um, and and that's what gets you sick. Nothing will change your view on the world quite like thinking very hard of a fecal veneer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is a it is a thought. <laughs> so, Mark, one of the things I found particularly interesting about your work um, is that you and others have found that many people with diarrhea actually don't want to treat their diarrhea. Why not? Well, th- this is a. Um a growing a growing uh, area of, of discussion and you know as as i was mentioning so diarrhea can come in 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 mild forms and severe forms and it it, it doesn't kill you you may think that it's going to kill you at the time but you get through it and it on average it'll last 3 to 5 days and you'll get through it and you'll resolve and you'll well we can talk about whether you really resolve there's there's also growing concern of chronic problems that occur after acute diarrhea but in the end you know you 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 get over it and that's coupled with the fact that we're learning more about the potential problems associated with antibiotics I and mean, you you and your listeners may be very well aware of, of antibiotic resistance of the potential effect of antibiotics on your microbiome so what do you what are we doing to the healthy bacteria in our gut when we take antibiotics um and so the coupling these 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 concerns of it'll get better you just let it you know tough it out for a few days it's going to get better and if you take antibiotics you may develop a resistant bug in your system and you're carrying that around with you um and that may or may not cause harm um that's caused this sort of clinical equipoise of of what should we do is is antibiotics good or antibiotics bad um I can tell you where I fall on, on the argument. And that is, is that, um, many of these studies that have been done to look at the potential adverse effects of taking antibiotics 
are looking at antibiotics that are taken for multiple days and multiple doses. But in fact, um, what the research I've been doing and our, and our team have been doing is we're getting antibiotic treatment down to a single dose of antibiotic. And so, um, it, it's, it's really, you've probably heard of the saying, it's, it's the dose that makes the poison. And we think that just a single dose of antibiotic is much less likely to cause any of these adverse uh, effects. Yet, it also is a very effective um, treatment to change that three to five day illness down to an illness that lasts twelve hours. So, um, and and that's and so that's um, in a nutshell that's the current controversy. But there are also people that I was reading about in Mary Roach's book who don't even believe in taking Imodium or something to kind of like stop it up. Right, right. And that's, yeah. So I'll, I'll, I mean, I would, I would turn it back. So, um, so yeah, you've got this bug that's making all these toxins and it's, uh, causing you an illness. And, and, and do you want to take something that stops up your gut and keeps it in there? Well, I don't know. Do I? <laughs> well, that's the that's the thought process behind it. Is that oh, I've got this 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 bad bug in my gut. I need to get rid of it. I don't want to keep it in. Imodium, you know, the way Imodium works, it's a it's a, um, it has a anti-secretory meaning that it uh, causes a or it decreases the secretions and the water, you know, the water going into your leaking into your gut, but it also decreases motility or it decreases the, the, the movement of your gut, which, um, is actually causing the diarrhea. Diarrhea is caused by not only more fluid leaking into your gut than it's being absorbed, but also your gut really being hyperactive and trying to, to move stuff. Um, and so, you know, the, the a, a natural, a, a response to an infection then, for someone thinking about it as well, my, my body's doing its natural thing to try to get it. It's trying to get rid of it with diarrhea. And, and why should I try to stop that diarrhea? And, and that's, um, you know, that's, that's one way of thinking about it. But in, in all the studies that we've done, it's, it's not really your body that is, um, responding that way to produce diarrhea. It's, it's partly the bug. The bug's trying to spread itself out in the environment so that it, it gets perpetuated in the environment. So it's inducing diarrhea so that the bug can survive, you know, and, 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 uh, and, and so I think that, that that's, a, it's a challenge of, of, of changing the mindset. Um, but, uh, antibiotics in combination with Imodium, um, is really the best treatment for watery diarrhea. And again, if it, it turns something that could be three to five days into something that lasts 12 hours, um, or less. And so, uh, it's, it's really a, a very effective combination therapy. And it's, and it's been studied that in, in our studies and other studies have looked at it. It doesn't come with any, um, significant, uh, increased risk. Um, so, uh, but, Again, when you're, when you're not, um, when you're a patient and you're, and you're maybe thinking about how your body's working and responding to things, it, it, it may seem counterintuitive to try to stop things up. But in fact, that's what works best in, in treating most watery diarrhea. But that's, of course, after you've already got diarrhea. You've right. actually been involved in trying to develop vaccines against diarrhea for use in the military and presumably outside of the military as well. But since most diarrhea is caused by bacteria and not viruses, how would a vaccine like that work? 
Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll just step back one, one, one thing that why we're developing, since there are such good treatments, one could say, well, you've got good treatments. Why do you want vaccines? Well, I, I had alluded to it and I'll, I'll speak just a little bit more on why we need vaccines to prevent it in the first place. One is, is that sometimes it's hard to access care. Um, sometimes you don't have antibiotics around or you're in a situation where you can't get treatment. Um, and, and so we want to prevent it in the first place. Um, but we're also finding is that these infections that are caused, uh, these bacteria and viruses that, and, and parasites even that cause these traveler's diarrhea, it doesn't just end when it, you know, the five days later when it's resolved. There's a, a significant proportion of people that will go on to develop chronic bowel problems like irritable bowel syndrome or constipation or dyspepsia. And so we really think that not only to prevent the acute effects of traveler's diarrhea, but we also want to prevent the long-term health consequences. And, and so the best way of doing that is preventing the infection in the first place. So moving on to, to really the question of how do we develop these these vaccines? Um, I, I'm 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 a vaccinologist or someone that that develops vaccines, and and uh, I'm probably the first one. Well, I'm not the first one to say, but but I'm in agreement that um, all the easy vaccines have been developed, <laughs> and uh, so these are hard vaccines. And why are they hard? Well, a lot of these bacteria and these viruses that cause diarrhea. They just stay in the, the lumen of your intestines. So they, they don't really invade deeply into the tissues. So most vaccines that are out there, like flu or uh, uh, pneumonia or meningitis, these are, these are, um, systemic infections. So these are infections where the bacteria or the virus invades your body and it's, it's in your bloodstreams and it's in your tissues. And so it's pretty easy, not pretty easy, but it's, it's, it's easier to develop a vaccine where you give someone a shot and it induces a strong, um, systemic immune response. And so it's, it, it, uh, is, it's effective towards these types of infections, but diarrhea, is not an invasive or not often an invasive infection. Again, it's in the lumen. Um, and, and so the question, the, the challenge is how do you best, um, initiate an, an immune response that's just in the lumen? And the best way to do that is actually giving, um, the vaccine, uh, orally or so that it's, it's either causing an infection or your intestines are, are being exposed to it and you develop an immune response. And that works pretty well. But the other thing that, that's challenging is that your body, there's a lot of things that you eat and, uh, and, and take in and ingestions and you don't want to develop immune responses to every single thing that you ingest because then you would be allergic to every single food or any, everything you put in your mouth. So your body tends towards the position of wanting to allow, uh, tolerance to things that you ingest. And so, the developing a vaccine um, to increase the immune response of your gut is a challenge because your body tends to want to um, be tolerant of those things that you take through the mouth. Um, so what what we've been focusing on are are looking at other ways of inducing or, or creating a good um, 
response in the gut. And interestingly, um, uh, giving things intranasally, so a nose spray or giving the vaccine uh, on the skin um, will have an effect of, of increasing the response in the gut. And so those are some of the things that, that we're doing to try to make our vaccines um, uh, target the, 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 the gut um, immunology. Um, and then the other things we're trying to use are, are, are special adjuvants. And adjuvants um, are chemicals or proteins that ramp up any immune response. So they, you give the adjuvants in addition to the parts of the bug that you want to induce a good immune response. And it just makes a, a, a stronger and more robust immune response. But with that being said, it's a challenge. I mean, we've been working on Shigella vaccines um, since World War II or even before. Um, and so these these vaccines that to address traveler's diarrhea are, are very difficult. Well, I'm sorry, we are completely out of time. But Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to give us the rundown on the <laughs> runs. You see what I did there? Yeah, that was good. That was very good. I hadn't heard that one before. <laughs> We've linked to Captain Riddle's research at scienceforthepeople.ca. When we get back, we'll be chatting with Dr. George Peck, who I also found from Mary Roach's new book. George will be taking us on a journey involving another aspect of the fly. It's larvae and how maggots can help wounds heal if we can only get over the ick factor. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. This is Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a writer with Science News and Society for Science and the Public. I'm here with Dr. George Peck, a medical entomologist who is managing a mosquito control district in Oregon. He's an expert in how maggots, yes, fly maggots, can be used to help human wounds heal. I came across him while reading Mary Roach's amazing new book, Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War, and I knew I had to take the opportunity to learn more about his work. George, thank you so much for making the time for us. It's my pleasure. Now, the procedure that you have been studying for many years is called maggot debridement therapy, or MDT. What is debridement? Well, debridement is a generic term for the uh, cleansing of wounds, the cleaning of wounds using um, instruments um, in the, at the human scale, that would be scalpels, um, other instruments that might uh, remove uh, dead and decaying tissue from any type of wound, large or small. In the insect world, um, with the maggot, the debridement actually occurs at the level of the larval fly. They have teeth that are razor sharp, and they gently, carefully, and joyously um, imbibe all of the necrotic tissues within wounds that they have infested and uh, literally clean that tissue right down to the healthy tissue, leaving a perfectly pink bed. Um, and it's it's really an amazing process. And debridement, it sounds like you're you're 
tearing away or eating away, as in the case of the maggots, tissue. Mm -hmm. Why is debridement important? Um, From a medical standpoint, um, it is important because dead tissue um, would most likely promote the growth of harmful bacteria within a wound. And so um, to promote healing, of course, the physician would want to remove the dead tissue and allow oxygen to get directly to the living tissue and to um, allow that tissue to be free of any any uh, bacteria that would be um, um, harming uh, the host. In that case, the in that case, it would be the human. And you mentioned that maggots joyfully. Uh, debride these wounds. And I have to say, when I first heard about this, it sounded a bit uh, medieval. <laughs> um, <laughs> when did this idea first come about? Well, I the ancients knew that uh, maggots um, were uh, something that would infest wounds. There's mention of it in the in the Bible, in the book of Job, where they talk about the maggots eating the wound. Um, and I would suppose that um, for the Western medical community, that it was during the Civil War when it first became obvious how incredibly useful uh, fly maggots were. Um, soldiers lay in the field for days sometimes after a battle without any help. And when the facility would come upon these soldiers, even after days in the field in the middle of the sun, very hot conditions, they would uh, tear off the uniform and find uh, thousands of maggots in some cases infesting their wounds. And when the maggots were brushed aside, what would be revealed were beautiful, pink, healthy, healing tissues. And at that point in time, there was uh, an interest in um, utilizing maggots for medical purposes. Um, beyond the Civil War, if we go forward in time roughly to the 1920s, 1930s, um, William Bayer, after World War I, uh, saw the need uh, for the use of medical maggots on the eastern seaboard, most likely in Baltimore. And there's a fascinating history of Bayer being one of the first people to treat humans with medical magnet medical mag- maggots and have fantastic results in in the clinic and is this Bayer as in Bayer aspirin no b a u r bayer um this was one of the most famous uh, physicians um in the uh, early uh, 20th century um, he's famous for many breakthroughs in many areas, and one of them was um, the uh, employment of fly maggots to aid in the healing process. And he was working around World War One, um, mm-hmm. but this treatment actually has uh, approval from the American Food and Drug Administration. When did that happen? When did scientists and physicians start taking maggots seriously as a treatment? Well, there was one individual on the West Coast of the United States in the 70s, um, Ron Sherman. And Ron had trained both as a physician and as an entomologist. And he was working at the VA Center, the Veterans Administration in Long Beach, California. And he noticed that many of the wounds that were being treated were not responding to antibiotics in the most rapid way or the best way possible. 
And being an entomologist and knowing about the habits of fly maggots and being familiar with the literature on them, as small as it was, he took it upon himself to begin a fly culture right there at the VA Center in Long Beach and began to um, treat veterans with their permission. And what he found was in cases, uh, say, of a diabetic foot ulcer or wounds that were not responding to normal treatments, he was able to turn around um, infections and in some cases perhaps even save uh, an amputation. And when was this approved by the U.S. FDA? Uh, this was approval, uh, was, I'm uh, going to say around in the mid 90s. Um, and, uh, Ron, um, has a facility in Irvine, California that continues to be scrutinized by the FDA. Each year they pass muster. Um, so it's an ongoing process to, uh, hold this licensed for a medical device and there is a, a very clean chain of events that occurs at Monarch Labs um, from the beginning until a shipment of these medical magnet medical maggots. <laughs> uh, so first of all, I, I love that maggots are a medical device. <laughs> mm -hmm. I wonder how the maggots feel about this. Um, but maggots are fly larvae and flies are usually in contact with a lot of not very clean things. How do scientists go about developing clean fly larvae that are, that are clean enough for medical use? Mm -hmm. Well, what has been successful for Ron at Monarch Labs and what I did in my laboratory is to allow the adult fly to lay its eggs on a piece of cow liver. The eggs are beautiful white, um, about two millimeters long, and the moment they're uh, deposited on the liver, of course, there's a small amount of bacteria that gets on them. What one can do then is to take these eggs and gently wash them with a weak chlorine bleach solution and then uh, treat them aseptically and uh, begin a chain of events by monitoring and, and, and uh, helping them to hatch and um, allowing the first, uh, we'd call them the, the earliest hatchlings or instar is the technical term in entomology. We'd allow the first instar to have uh, a soy-based broth that is sterile. And that soy-based broth would keep them alive for roughly 24 to 48 hours, just enough time for them to be shipped anywhere in the United States, applied to a wound full of necrotic tissue, which is, of course, their favorite food. And there we have uh, something that starts out a little dirty, uh, remains sterile until it's applied to the wounds, and then um, the healing process begins. You mentioned necrotic tissue. Um, mm -hmm. What what exactly does that mean? In what situations are these maggots used for? One of the best understood and widely studied is in the case of um, uh, diabetic ulcers. Most of the time it's on the foot and uh, the the patient is not responding to the milieu of chemicals being offered to them, antibiotics and other materials, perhaps antifungals. And as things worsen, um, in some cases, amputation is uh, discussed. 
Um, if the physician is willing to embrace the maggot-debridement technology um, through a prescription, they can have these maggots shipped overnight and applied to the wounds. And so one would take these very small two-millimeter-long first instar fly maggots and place them on the wound and then uh, cover the wound with a, a bandage with very strong adhesive to prevent them from escaping. So keeping them right on the wound, allowing airflow into the wound through through a screen in the bandage. And the moment those fly maggots taste the dead tissue in that wound, they will begin to ingest it. And this particular species of fly, and only this fly, the technical Latin binomial is Lucelia sericata. We know it as the green bottle fly that we see at our picnics throughout the United States. Um, this particular fly only will eat the dead tissue. And uh, so that's important when one is uh, thinking about um, this process because there are many flies that will not stop with the dead necrotic tissue but will invade living tissue. Um, and this is a bigger issue that is part of the greater world of medical and veterinary entomology. So I'm particularly amused that uh, maggots are available by prescription. <laughs> Indeed. I, I suppose it's good they're not over the counter. Um, how does a doctor get maggots shipped in? Does he just call up and say, hey, I need some maggots? Exactly. Uh, Ron's wife, Julie, is on the phone uh, five days a week taking calls from all over the United States. Um, the moment the call comes in, um, the wheels turn, um, the maggots are taken out of their um, uh, container where they're being held. Um, usually they've hatched that morning and they're placed into plastic vials, which are um, offered a small amount of the soy broth, sealed tightly. Instructions are placed with them. Perhaps bandages are ordered at the same time. Uh, maybe a cold pack to keep them uh, cold as they travel across the country. And they're uh, right next to the uh, John Wayne Airport in Irvine, California, so they can literally put it right onto the jet and have it out there the next day to any clinic. Um, and um, a typical day for Monarch Labs of these fly shipments, I would, I'm would i thinking they were telling me about 10 shipments a day. Um, so uh, Ron actually does... Um, practice clinical medicine uh, at clinics away from the laboratory because it is a small market, um, so they're kind of on a shoestring, but it is a fascinating technology, and he is the leader in the United States on this technology. And you mentioned that when the fly larvae get to the patient, they are applied to the wound and there's a special dressing. How long does treatment with these take? Well, flies grow rapidly, um, and the human body temperature um, promotes this rapid growth. So the nursing staff would be advising the patient to come back the next day and have that bandage removed. And if uh, the chain of logistics is planned correctly, there'll be a second overnight shipment and a second application. And in most cases, the wounds are responding rapidly within a week uh, treatments would cease and um, there'd be what we call a pink healthy granulation tissue bed that had formed in the wound and uh, typical regular um, prophylactic treatments would continue and the maggots would not be indicated at that point. It, it depends on the patient and it depends on the wound. 
Um, in the Army, we had to uh, do work where we were working towards simulating IED blasts, the explosive improvised devices that were wounding the uh, the soldiers. And so these types of wounds were even more rugged than a typical diabetic ulcer. So we were uh, testing other species of flies that were uh, a little more aggressive in their cleaning action. Um, it's it's um, it's a wide open ball field with these types of therapies. Uh, it, it's really it's very very interesting. And you mentioned that that the Monarch Laboratory might have ten or so shipments per day. How mm-hmm. widespread is maggot debridement therapy right now? Um, I would say that it is of worldwide use. When we look at the literature, I would say that the majority of studies have come from Europe, uh, Britain especially, Germany. Um, less so, um, there was an Egyptian study. Um, I've seen a few from the Asian continent. Um, and of course, the North American, uh, there's a lot of North American uh, studies as well. Um, and there's a collaborative uh, group of people that work together to promote these types of therapies. And they have a professional scientific society and uh, there's annual meetings. Um, it can run anywhere from um, a couple of uh, talks on maggots. There may be a few leech talks. There may even be uh, uh, brought in, uh, say, companion pet talks where um, uh, psychological benefits are um, discussed um, by you know, by uh, interacting with animals. So there's, there's really um, um, a community of people that want these therapies to be supported and studied and promoted. And you mentioned, and honestly, I, I rather agree with you. There's, there's a bit of an ick factor here. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not an easily grossed out person, but it, it takes a little getting used to. Um, yeah. How do you think people might go about getting rid of the ick factor? Um, one way is to change the form of the therapy. For example, one can order from Monarch Labs um, a maggot um, sachet, where the maggots are in a soy broth within a sachet, and uh, their excretion and their secretions are allowed to ooze out of the sachet when the sachet is uh, applied to the wound. And so what will happen is there'll be um, two responses. There'll be a proteolytic response. So the maggots secrete proteolytic enzymes that will um, break up the dead tissue and make kind of a syrup out of it. And so that's um, rather than a mechanical uh removal, there's that um, effect. And then there's also antibiotics that the, the maggots excrete. And these have been studied um, in a very um, initial way. And there's been papers that have looked at um, um, specific proteins being emitted by the maggots that do have a harmful effect on any uh, pathogenic bacteria within the wound. That can uh, decrease the ick factor, put the sachet on, take it off after 24 hours, put a new one on. You never get to see the crawling worms and you're good. So um, it's, it's like maggots yeah. in, a, in a tea bag. Yes. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah. that's really funny. Yes. Um, and um, people really want to move um, forward with um, 
more precise um, uh, modalities. So people are studying the actual chemical structure of the secretions that are put forth from the maggots and trying to perhaps um, use those as uh, topical antibiotics. Um, and there's even groups that um, are attempting to genetically modify the maggots. Um, I was involved in a study with the University of Maryland where we were um, taking the fly eggs and literally injecting DNA constructs into them with the idea that we would modify the genome and once we became adept at modification of the genome, introduce novel genes that perhaps could jump the game up so that we'd be making super maggots. If there's anything uh, better than a maggot, it is a super maggot. Indeed. So you mentioned in some of your publications that maggot debridement therapy is actually enjoying kind of a renaissance, uh, partially due to antibiotic resistance. Why is maggot debridement therapy a good choice here? Um, I would say that we we will continue to see resistance um, and we will continue to see that uh, bacteria will be one jump ahead of us in terms of uh, modalities where it's one chemical after another, after another, after another. Whereas um, the, the ultimate debridement tool, the expert microsurgeon, if you will, is living right in front of us in decomposing organic matter in our backyard, the green bottle fly, Lucilia sericata. And so once we uh, are able to get over the idea that this fly may cause us harm, what we can now embrace is this idea that the fly may save us from having a limb amputated by allowing it to become part of the wound milieu for a moment, for a day, for two, and then um, let it do its work. And then... Um, you know, we've, we've, we've really turned around, uh, kind of a losing battle where, uh, more and more antibiotics are needed, but fewer and fewer companies are taking on the burden of trying to produce them. So I, I, I have, I have great hope for these types of, um, more organic therapies. And I think we should follow the lead of the Europeans. Um, who tend to be more pragmatic about um, uh, health modalities and, uh, you know, just just realize that this is the best way to do things, even though perhaps in our, um, in our youth we've been told that uh, all insects are gross and we should avoid them. And you mentioned they do produce an antibiotic of their own. Yeah, they do. Um, and there's been groups in uh, Czechoslovakia was one of them, and there's been others in the U.K., that have teased apart the specific components of the maggot secretions and uh, tested them singly for their antibiotic effects against, say, Staph aureus or um, other pathogens. And they are seeing effects. Um, they're complex proteins. They may not be easily marketable because of their stability. Um, but these are the steps forward that need to happen um, given our present state of antibiotic resistance and the way that we are in terms of the use of antibiotics. You've also done some very interesting work involving airlifting maggots, uh, the airworthiness of maggots. Why would you want to airlift a maggot? Right. Um, well, again, the military uh, has soldiers coming out of theaters with uh, sometimes terrible recalcitrant wounds that will not respond to any antibiotic available. 
And what we were hoping to uh, demonstrate was that the maggots would not be affected by the rigors of the medical airlift. And so this occurs in two two ways usually. It's the helicopter airlift um, in the short term um, near the theater, so maybe from a field hospital to a major hospital, and then from that, say, Kandahar Major Hospital in Afghanistan all the way to uh, the main military hospital in Germany. Uh, so that would be a, a C-130 transport plane. And in these planes, there can be uh, highs and low temperatures. There can be pressure changes. And it's not that we were uh, worried that the maggot would be harmed by this. It's the idea that we had to go through the military's gauntlet of tests to have it be an officially usable medical device on the personnel. And so we literally did that. We let the maggots fly in helicopters. Um, we took pressure measurements, temperature measurements. We measured uh, growth of the maggots. That was the metric. Um, we had a control on the ground and we saw um, very little hindrance of growth. Um, therefore, this particular living medical device was performing beautifully in these medical airlift situations. I just love the idea of putting maggots in helicopters for science. Mm -hmm. In my head, they're wearing little helicopter headphones and <laughs> have little seatbelts. <laughs> I'm mm -hmm. sure it's not really that cute. <laughs> we, we should make it but that cute. I, I really, I, I think we really, that there's, there's a need to, to embrace the, these types of, um, these types of, uh, um, treatments. And I, I do see a need to, to lighten it up. Yeah. So mm. I was wondering, you are, are working in mosquito control now, and previously you've done all this work with maggots. Mm -hmm. What draws you to medical entomology? Well, I've loved nature all my life. I've loved the complexity of the living world. I've studied plants. Um, when I first started to study entomology, I realized that instead of conserving insects, what I really needed to be able to get good at was how to destroy them, especially now with mosquito control. But there's an incredible awesomeness to the natural world and of all of the organisms on the planet. There's more, there's more insect species than any other. Um, and it just so happens that uh, if you want to pay the bills, you have to be pragmatic and say, well, um, I'm, I'm finished netting butterflies for the day. I better get back to the lab and show everyone how good these maggots work. Um, so there's, there's kind of a two-sided scientist where um, there's a need to, 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 to have your work be seen as useful in the world but there's also this incredible spirit and this incredible awe that, that you, you feel and that you are continuing to, to move with as, as the science progresses. And, um, you call it a career. I, I guess it is, but to me, it's just a lot of fun. Well, George, thank you so much for telling us <laughs> about these fascinating creatures and their important role in medicine. It's my pleasure. Thank you. We have linked to George Peck's research at scienceforthepeople.ca. There, you'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave a review. You'll also find links to our Patreon page, where you can support our fantastic producers and editors with a monthly donation. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. 
Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. Thank you.